Hello, and welcome to Speaking Culturally. Today is our final episode of our series where we're looking at how do we interpret slavery going forward. Today we are joined by historic interpreter and public historian Lacey Wilson. Lacey, thank you for joining the show today. Happy to be here. Lacey, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a historic interpreter and public historian, like you said. I would say I got my start as a child of the DMV who uh, grew up going to the Smithsonian for free and not realizing that everyone didn't have that opportunity to just go to museums for free and went to UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, um, majoring in history with a minor in American studies doing a lot of public history before their public history undergraduate program was really together together. But I've taken a lot of classes doing public history there as an undergrad. Um, I did, I worked at Prince George's County's Black History Department, uh, Prince George's County's Recreation and Parks Black History Department for a year and a half afterwards, and then went to University of Maryland, University of North Carolina at Greensboro for my master's program doing um, work on the uh, ACOC project and renaming that occurred there while I was there uh, and doing my capstone project with Growing Change. Um, I became a historic interpreter for Telfair Museums right after grad school, but I've become certified as an interpreter um, back in Prince George's County. There was a workshop with the Association for African American Museums the Smithsonian's uh, African American Museum of History and Culture um, that was put together to train people to become historic interpreters. And I did that and found it very exciting to be able to learn how to tell history in that kind of way. And so after graduation, I had an opportunity to come down to Savannah to do it at Telfair Museums. With what you've learned thus far um, in your career, what is it that you see site museum goers in search of when they visit these spaces? I think a lot of the time people who come to historic sites want to see the things. They want to see the furnishing. They want to see what it was like to live in the past. Um, and in doing that, um, that can show up in terms of just like the house and architecture. It comes up in what technology existed for those people at the time and furnishings and such. And that's often what they'll focus on and ask about toward the beginning in terms of being excited to see the house and stuff. Um, it's, I, I, I think that's a lot of the time what people expect at historic sites, but specifically historic houses, that's often what they are most excited to see. Now, how do you go about, how do you, how do you interpret what would have happened inside of a historic house? So the way I do it on my tours is I'm very strategic in using what they think they want to see in terms of actually talking about who's actually handling it. Because people, are, we go to the formal dining room, and it's a gorgeous room at the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters. Gorgeous dining room, huge table, very fancy living. Um, but the people who would be sitting down at this table will be enjoying the labor of the enslaved people that were also there that were also in all of these rooms uh, in terms of cooking all the food in the kitchen, in terms of um, bringing the food up and plating it into the butler's pantry, in terms of serving it on the same table as well as setting up this table and cleaning everything that you see. In terms of using it, I think it's really important to sort of use the things that, they, that visitors maybe think they want to hear more about to actually talk about the people on the property that they may or not have expected to hear about that particular day. 
um, I think it's really interesting to hear because we go, we, the tourist begins at the Owen Thomas South and Slave Quarters, it begins in the Slave Quarters. So I know generally from that point on, people expect to hear about enslaved people in the Slave Quarters. But I will continue to talk about enslaved people throughout the rest of the tour in the house because they weren't just regulated there. They were all through all rooms in this house. There was an interaction with them in terms of things they were be doing to sort of maintain the property, to clean things, to be um, sort of nannying the children in terms of moving things around and keeping all of this house as fancy and expensive and clean and opening the doors, doing everything that would have made this house what it was at the time. How do the people who are on your tours feel about hearing about slavery throughout uh, the entire tour beyond the initial room? Um, does that usually cause any problems or are they uneasy about it? I think it varies on so because every tour in, and group of people coming in is absolutely different. I think when I first started there, we had already established the um, Owens Thomas and Slave Quarters. We hadn't, we hadn't changed our name yet to adding the and Slave Quarters part when I first arrived, but we will collect, um, we were already essentially starting to call it that. Um, so in doing that, I think some people were, um, were surprised by the fact that it kept coming up. And I think some, um, so I think some people react differently because it, it encompasses all people. So I've definitely had toward the, when I first got started, had people who would ask me more about the furnishings in terms of who made this, where did it come from, what's original. And those are fine questions. I, I wouldn't, I would never discount them, but I, but I often think in my wonder in my mind if they're asking these questions to sort of get me off the topic about enslavement. Uh, my tours developed, uh, written and approved by the by our lead interpreter in terms of talking about um, enslavement here. That's something we definitely focus on at the site. Um, so we notice when they sort of ask more about the decorative arts and the architecture. Um, we wonder if that's what they're trying to avoid in terms of that. But I've also had the opposite direction, which people have sought our site out because we talk about enslaved people in this way with the nuance that existed in terms of adding and talking about the really the more complete story of the house. So I've had people who have been genuinely excited by the fact that I'm talking about the enslaved people in all of these spaces and in the way that they, um, their lives would have gone in these places. Now, do you alter your tours based on age so that people get the most out of the experience? Um, I think it's, uh, I think the, in, um, the tour can change. Uh, I, I, we, so we, we do have a program in which we've been bringing eighth grade students specifically into the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters and Telfair Academy. That's like a school group that we are bringing in um, to talk about urban enslavement in Savannah and to really sort of go with the curriculum of Georgia state school standards. And those tours are different because we're talking, we want to sort of, we want to talk about as explicitly as possible the political power that the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters has, the um, the sort of be the, the literal beginning of slavery in Savannah because they're one of, when Oglethorpe founded Georgia, there was this thing about how he said he didn't want slavery, he didn't want um, lawyers, and he didn't want Catholics, but slavery was always in Georgia. Um, and we have to sort of dive into like the nuance of that and explain how he said this, but also this is what he did, and these are things that happened. So with the eighth grade students, um, it's a very 
technical thing of just working with the curriculum and adding as much nuance as possible with that in still a 45-minute guided tour and talking about the using the property and the people who were here in that same set. So that tour is specifically for eighth, um, for the eighth grade groups that we have coming in, and that one is different. I think my regular tour for anyone who's just coming in, who might be the demographic you're describing, the old, the older white people coming in, I think that tour, I my tour in that time, um, for those, I really want to dive into using the house and the slave quarters and talking about the political power that George Owens had. Um, because in addition to an enslaver and a plantation owner, he's a rep in Congress for about two terms. Um, and in, during the time that he's there, he's involved in the discussions of the gag rule of 1836, which is one of those compromises before the Civil War. And it's important to sort of talk about the things that he was able to do as a rich white man and enslaver who had the power to, who had the um, right to vote at the time and who was able to be in Congress to be involved with decisions like this that most of the people on the property could not do, including his wife, including his three daughters, but definitely including the enslaved people there that outnumbered all of them. So I like to bring on my regular tours to sort of explain George Owens is very wealthy. Um, um, This house shows that. His wealth comes from the enslaved people both on this property and his plantations, and he uses that wealth to go to Congress to do things like this. So before your tours, like what, what preparation do you go to go through prior to giving your tours? Um, it's a long, uh, I would say, I guess it really depends on how we're defining my preparation. Um, Cause I became a certified historic interpreter before arriving at Telfair Museums. Um, and I got a crash course in the, um, arrive, I accepted this job and starting, I got a real crash course in all the research that they have available in terms of things that they know about the enslaved people, things that we know about George Owens and his property and his political power and things he votes for. So there's so much research that was done before I arrived there and it's still going on today in terms of all of these things that occurred on this property and with these people. So I um, just try to keep myself um, refreshed on um, the decorative objects, which I, um, in terms of who would be using them and what they, um, when they came from and stuff, for those who care, um, care about the decorative objects parts. But I think it's really important to sort of be able to know and be assertive with the complete stories of the enslaved people as well. Like, I'd love to be able to, um, I, I always try to, I'd always try to use the names of the enslaved people that we know definitively were there. Like, we know Peter was the enslaved butler. We know Emma was the enslaved nanny. We know Diane was the enslaved cook on the Owens-Thomas house property when it um, was the slave quarters and when the Owens are there. I think using their names as intentionally as possible is very important because then they're, because it gives them the humanity of just being there. They were people. They were enslaved people, but they were people. So I try to use their names as much as possible, and then if people... I've often gotten the question of whether I'm making up those names, which I find really interesting. Um, but I think giving, um, but those are some of the few names that we know of the enslaved people who were here. And I think being able to name them and explain as much as we can what they would have done on this property is really crucial to giving that complete history and story of the house. All right. So looking forward, 
what can we do better to interpret slavery and what parts are we missing in our current interpretations? I think there's a lot of nuance to the story of enslavement that we're missing for a vo- in a variety of ways in terms of the actual study of enslavement and the interpretation as well. But I also think talking about the legacy of enslavement in terms of what the country did after that and its many connections and relevance to today is so crucial. So I would say both of those things in terms of the actual future of interpretation makes a lot of sense in terms of looking forward. So there's um, urban enslavement. Um, Savannah, one of the things we talked about explicitly in the Owen Thomas House Enslaved Quarters is why the fact that this was a city around the enslaved people. They, they weren't on this plantation on the site that we're on. There was a city around them. So they're interacting with other enslaved people through the city and free black people through the city and how all of these connections make this experience kind of different than what we think of when we think of plantation slavery. Not that plantation slavery didn't exist for people enslaved by the Owens, but not on the site that we're talking about. We're primarily talking about urban enslavement on that one. Um, uh, I think in terms of talking about the way, there's a great book that came out recently that I haven't gotten a chance to read, but I've heard really good things about in terms of the way um, white women owning enslaved people made those stories a bit different. Because I don't think that's a story that's been told a lot in the same sort of ways. Um, I think in terms of the legacies of slavery, there's a lot more that needs to be discussed to bring relevance today. Uh, in terms of the right in the Reconstruction period, the further conversations about sharecropping, convict leasing, and debt peonage are all very interesting stories that brings, um, bring really interesting conversations to today in terms of prison labor, in terms of debt on a variety of levels, in terms of who's owning land and who doesn't. Um, I think there are connections all through that. Um, but I also think there are a lot of really good black interpreters out there whose work we can, um, who, who we can listen more to in terms of their experiences interpreting these things. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of um, good work done by them, but it's also important to recognize that for black interpreters, they'll get different sort of questions and comments during their work than their white counterparts might. And I think listening to those experiences and adjusting to them because their interesting conversations can come from those, but if we don't recognize that they're going to have different experiences and then some of their white um, um, their white coworkers, then we're then we're falling um, we're falling back a little bit for sure as well. So I would say um, adding more nuance to the story of an enslavement uh, in the United States, talking about the legacy in terms of history today, and uh, listening to and uplifting the stories of Black interpreters in terms of their experiences in work like this. Lacey, thank you so much for stopping by speaking culturally. Um, I'm going to let you have the floor and offer any last words you may have. Um, I would definitely say that um, if you can, if you are if you're a Black interpreter listening to this episode right now, there's a Black Interpreters Guild that you can join, you can find on Facebook in terms of being able to sort of share experiences and talk more about things. And um, if you're in Savannah and want to stop by the Owens Thomas House and Slave Quarters, we're doing really good work there. And I think that's worth sharing for sure. Again, I sincerely thank you uh, for being a part of this series and this project. And uh, thanks for stopping by.
Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.